The title of the sermon will be uh, Love, Obedience, Leadership. I did have a handout. It was with a bunch of uh, scriptures, but printer issues abounded this morning, so sorry. (laughs) Um, So I'll probably have to call out a bunch of scriptures, and if you want to follow along in the Bible, that'd be great. And... uh, But it's love, obedience, and, well, fruit. I actually changed it from leadership to fruit, sorry. Um, An emphasis on the first and greatest commandment. So making an account of our our week this past week is something I'd like us to consider today. There's a little bit of exercise. Sorry, I'm going to make you think. Um, What did we do with our hours, with our minutes, with our days? What did we do, and can we give an account? Do we know how we spent them? Do we know how we invested them? Uh, Psalm 90 says um, in verse 9 on, this is the Psalm of Moses. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? And your fury, according to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and give permanence to us and the work of our hands. Yes, give permanence to the work of our hands. Verse 17, the last verse, is a little paraphrased, uh, that Nasby actually reads. Um, I can't remember what it reads. I changed it because there's a, there's a footnote that says give permanence to. I like that idea. Permanence to the work of my hands. We invest so much time, energy, and labor into the things we do throughout the week. It would be really good if God graced us with actual permanence <laughs> to that labor, would it not? That they would be fruitful works that would be valuable and lasting in the kingdom. That would be a prayer that I would hope everybody prays on a regular basis. But what does it mean to present the Lord a heart of wisdom? 1 Corinthians 1.30, but, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, the NLT actually reads that um, Christ became wisdom itself. When we perceive Christ, when we engage with the person of the Son, we are engaging with many things. He's our life, he's our hope, he's our redemption, he's our uh, older brother, but he's also wisdom itself, personified, uh, the logos of God, as it were. But having the same heart and mind as Christ, being united to him, being intimately acquainted with him as wisdom, is the way that our hearts would be able to be wise, and therefore we would be able to present to God at the end of our lives a heart of wisdom, or even on a day-to-day basis, depending on how you think about it. Um, But being united with Him is what wisdom looks like at the end of our lives. Philippians 2, I think John Gray shared this one last week, I share it this week. Honestly, we could share it every week. This is like one of the this one of those things. This is a uh, a Bible reading plan wrecking passage. Same with John 17. You know, you're on your Bible reading plan. You've got to get through so many chapters a day. You hit this spot. You hit certain portions of Scripture. It's the temptation is to camp out, <laughs> not make it through your reading plan. Uh, Philippians 2 and John 17 are 
Bible reading plan wreckage passages. <laughs> Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, the NLT says, have this mind. Have this mind or attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, which as we noted before, he is wisdom itself, therefore his mind would be a pretty wise mentality who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. I hear a lot of feedback. I don't know if you guys are too, but... Okay. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but... Oh, sorry, excuse me. Verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christ is the one who is worthy of all the worship, of all the glory, and he gives that glory to God the Father in their dance of agape, their love dance, where they are mutually upholding and honoring one another within the Trinity. This is the dynamic and so forth within the Trinity. We'll maybe get to that a little bit later. But the point is, is that his attitude and his mentality is that he humbled himself by becoming obedient. If we are to present to God a heart of wisdom at the end of our lives, obedience is utterly crucial and an expectation of ourselves to be obedient in every regard to every way possible that God or Christ could communicate to us a standard, we should be obedient to it. That's the plumb line. Christ is worthy of that obedience because he was obedient. He's the example and the pattern. So obedience has been my pondering, and um, the question is, what motivates my heart to be obedient? How may I be more motivated to become obedient? How is it possible to unite myself to Christ's mind and mentality and be conformed to him in such a way that obedience becomes a primary lifestyle. That's a, that should also resonate with every single one of us and cause us to cry out to God on a regular basis. So I think this thought came to the forefront in my mind um, about the first or second leaders meeting that I was invited to. I was impressed, and this is not exclusive to the leaders' meeting by any means, it just it, it came clear at that moment, that I was impressed by all the people that were around us, that we were all sitting there, and for some reason the Holy Spirit just even kind of emphasized that our desire in this meeting and in the service of the church and in all the activities and the work that we put into, you know, 
doing life together as this community. Obedience to God is a primary affection. It's a primary desire for every single one of those individuals. And I was overwhelmed with a sense of, uh, of privilege to be part of a group that values loving God by obedience so thoroughly. So I don't know. That, that's, that was where this started in my mind, was that thought. Um, but therefore, our obedience is an expression of love and, um, and worship, and I'd like to explore that a little bit with some of these other passages. Um, and how obedience is directly tied to worship. Revelation 5. This will be the next long passage. We'll do the whole chapter. Because who doesn't love reading from Revelation 5? I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Praise God. He is worthy to receive everything. If we could envision in the spirit the scene around the throne, this is what goes on perpetually. This is the worship due him, and we as the church participate in that. This chorus, this anthem, this this extolling and magnification of the Lamb as the worthy one. We are always wrapped up in it. And in fact, we have to get the rest of the world wrapped into it. Daniel 7, 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
He is worthy of everything, even our obedience, and he will have all obedience. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. There's a direct corollary between loving God and obeying him. And that, I believe, is the answer to that original question of what motivates me to desire to, love, to obey God more is we have to tap in to the heart of God and loving God in deeper and deeper ways. Romans 1, Paul gives a kind of an introduction and accords his uh, apostleship with a mission and a purpose that he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Acts 5, 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. The obedience of faith is a primary, motive, or a primary mission of the apostles. And whoever believes the Son has eternal life, and therefore you don't have life if you don't obey. And Hebrews 5.9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The handout, which if we ever get a chance, maybe it won't be today, but I'd like to pass it out to you, is a series of verses that all that have three sections. Verses about obedience to God, verses on loving God, and verses on fruitfulness. And the tie-in between the, t- the three is very plain because the language overlaps over and over and over again in all these different references. Many of them will be familiar to you, so it's not like it's necessarily revelatory, but it is such an emphasis that we have to prioritize it in that, in that way. He's the source of the life, the salvation, and gives the Holy Spirit in greater measure to those who obey. But there's another purpose for the gifts of life, salvation, and graces, and the Holy Spirit. There's a purpose and a, a, a thrust and an end goal that God is very clear about. It's not hard to imagine. John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. <clears throat> every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, Sorry, I just totally eliminated my page here. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anything does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Fruitfulness brings us and God joy and renders true worship to the Father. And that comes by abiding in His love and obeying His commandments. How do we abide in this love? By keeping His commandments. God's desire is for us to be fruitful in Him. But is it just fruit that He's after? Or is the fruit the proof of something else? For wisdom is proven by its fruits. Song of Solomon. Chapter 7, verses 10 and 12. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. So the Song of Songs is one of those books that one of these days, if I ever get the opportunity, I'm totally doing an expositional series on. I will totally do that, hands down, any time of the week. I love the Song of Songs. <laughs> That's one of my favorite books. I need, and I need an excuse to read some more books on the, on the, on the, uh, on the book. But... The idea of the Song of Songs is, uh, and it's always been classically interpreted in certain ways. There's been three major ways, a natural interpretation, a spiritual interpretation, and an allegorical. The allegorical gets a little weird, so I generally don't float that direction. But between the natural and the spiritual, there is quite a bit to, do, uh, to be benefited, uh, to be profitable, excuse me. So the natural, of course, is Solomon and the Shulamite maiden. Um, it probably was quite literally a real relationship that he had. Um, it, it is poetry, um, and it is kind of a record, in a sense, of their uh, relationship. Uh, but he had many wives, so there's no doubt that one of them may have been a Shulamite maiden. Um, but the, uh, the depth of the love that they had for one another and the process that they went through in um, coming to that love is definitely a valid and necessary understanding. Is that, that would be called the natural interpretation. But the spiritual interpretation is what the Holy Spirit did through that relationship and the poetry according to it. It's a testimony and in a picture of Christ as the bridegroom, Solomon, and as the church, the Shulamite maiden. So it's busted up basically into four chapters. There's a demarcation right in the center when, when that, where the whole book kind of hinges. But this particular verse, Psalm 7, 10, it's actually at the end of the book. Um, at the end of the book is the most mature portions of their relationship because it's a process of maturing the bride unto a unified bride with the bridegroom. That's actually kind of the whole... That's the beauty and the picture of it. So in chapter 7, we've got um, the bride saying, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. She's recognizing who she is to the bridegroom and the way the bridegroom is affectionate towards her, the way he thinks of her, the way his desires are towards her. And this, this passage of saying, come, let's go into the country, let's go spend the night in the villages, let's go out into the vineyards and see if there's any fruit. See if we can find any fruit. There I will give you my love. It's, a, it's an image and a, uh, a declaration of let, let, us, let me partner with you in going into the earth and rendering, going into the world, rendering fruit with you. 
that is the measure, that is the way that I will love you. There I will give you my love. That is, should be in the heart of the church, but it is a mature cry of the church. It's a mature affection, and we have to, as we press into maturity in Christ, rendering more obedience and being motivated by love, this is the language that should influence and inform our expressions um, in our prayer life and the way we think of our relationship with Christ. I've spent a lot of time on this because uh, I spent time in 2009 and 2010 listening to a group out in Kansas City called the International House of Prayer. They're a great group of people. I do caveat the staying because I differ on a number of theological points with them, but the one thing that was the Song of Solomon and the the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what they call the bridal paradigm, perceiving the images of Christ as bridegroom and church as bride, major thrusts for them. So that has always been, for the last 10 years, I can honestly say I probably, that was probably 2009, late 2009 was about the point in time where I really started to wrestle correctly, or at least in the right direction, with the things of the faith. Doesn't mean I didn't go through all kinds of weird cycles and so forth of sin, um, but it was when he, and to use the language of Song of Solomon, when I was awoken to love. Be careful not to awake Um, anyone to love until the time is right. That was about the time when the love of God became very apparent to me and it became clearer in an experiential way. So it was very important for me to go out there and interact with that group and listen to some of their teachings. In fact, I got to pull up some of of their teachings on the first commandment this week and um, it it just brought me right back. I, I know that I didn't have the first and greatest commandment in the priority that it should have been. Because it is the purpose of the church, of the Holy Spirit. It is the purpose of the Holy Spirit to restore the first commandment to primary importance in the church. That is a point of restoration that is absolutely an emphasis of the Holy Spirit. And we have to, uh, I want to say, uh, conform. That's the word. We have to conform. We have to abide that. That's why in our um, Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity, the first emphasis is knowing and loving God because it is of first and primary importance and it has to become greater and greater and greater in our lives and in our actions. It has to be influential. It has to be the, the starting point. Knowing and loving God for the sake of knowing and loving Him is an end in itself. That's what I've always been told. <laughs> that's, been, that's been a struggle to get to that place. I think it's a journey of maturation to see your place, that become close to somewhere primary in your heart. Um, and I hope to find that someday. But that is definitely the scriptural plumb line and the emphasis of the Holy Spirit. Um, but the first and greatest commandment comes through Matthew 22, 34. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. But it actually is a citation and therefore an interpretation by Jesus of the commandment in Deuteronomy 6, what's commonly known as the Shema. I may be pronouncing that wrong. I think it's Shema, which in Hebrew means listen. Um, and I don't have that. Actually, I do because I have that up. You guys didn't get it. I'm sorry. But hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you this day shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they, will be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And in, in an effort to interpret and respond to a lawyer asking Jesus questions in Matthew 23, it's actually, and I think all four Gospels, definitely in the first three, um, he said to them, or the lawyer asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Trying to kind of test him and trap him maybe. But Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The command in Deuteronomy to love God with everything is the same command that Jesus emphasizes as the first and the greatest. It was an immutable command. It is not changing. It's not going anywhere. It is here to stay. Part of the fruit that we're after is the fruit of obedience energized by love. That is probably the core of what I'm after here. But there's, a cup, there's more than just a, one way to start to approach that. Uh, the Song of Solomon being, you know, the bride infatuated and totally thrilled and totally expectant of her bridegroom, um, that will propel us into that place. But also, thinking of John 17, John 17 is the high priestly prayer, prayer excuse me, of Christ, and I don't know if you, how much anybody's ever considered that one, it's totally worth spending a lifetime on, um, and I'm trying to remember where I put it in my notes. There's a couple phrases, specifically understanding that Jesus is praying to the Father. If Jesus is the, most, is the perfect, obedient Son of the Father, if He is the Son in whom I'm well pleased, as, as God pronounced at His baptism, do you think God would give Him what He asks in a prayer? Duh, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So Jesus praying perfectly obedient, perfectly submitted to the Holy Spirit, perfectly in the line without sin, in line obediently to God's will without sin, this prayer is going to come true if it hasn't already and so forth. If it's not all the way fully manifest, it is going to happen because God would not deny His Son. John 17, I won't read the whole chapter, um, but I do want to highlight a couple verses. And if you want to turn to that one, because I'll just do it quicker than that, than reading the whole thing, even though it's totally worth it. Uh, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you had given me to do. He was obedient, and he was, uh, he was fruitful. He accomplished it. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself and the glory which I had with you before the world was. A couple verses later, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Hearkening back to the John 15, uh, I am the true vine, being fruitful is both joyous to God and to the believer, but he wants his joy, Christ's joy, to be in us, made full in the people that he's praying for. For their sakes I sanctify myself 
that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. So that, there's a reason for it, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ is asking the Father that the church would be with him where he is also. And indeed we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, hearkening to Ephesians. We are united with him in the spirit and in love. We are with him where he is also, even now. And our awareness of that has to increase because that's the legal reality that comes in salvation is we are united to Christ that thoroughly, that completely, that immediately, by grace through faith, but in love. And that love has to start to mature. And so we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds have to catch up with the realities that God actually gives us in the full package of salvation. We have to learn to love God greater and greater and greater so that the love with which God loved the Son would be in us. This is what Christ is praying for. This is what the Holy Spirit on earth is going to accomplish. This is what we have to be engaged in. We have to expect this. We want to be in love with God with that same agape. I think it's, it's an actually interesting, if you get this, if we end up getting this uh, list to you, whenever in the love verses, if you just read agape and consider selfless, divine love, those three words, that's good enough, is what is experienced in the Godhead, is what this love that he is desiring us to have, selfless, divine love, that for the sake of the other, willing to lay your life down for the sake of the other, that love is the love he's after in us. That's worth just kind of reading over every time you read the word love. Just say it that way to yourself because that's what he's referring to. Our English word love is a little weak to the depth of what that is all about. How will the Holy Spirit accomplish this? He does it through the church, maturing the church, and having the church mature itself. That's a tricky thought. Song 8. So we're back to Song of Solomon. Chapter 8, verse 6. Again, at the end of the book, so this is in the mature category versus the immature images. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Referring to love, strong as death, jealously demanding as the grave, flashes of flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Think all-consuming fire. God is an all-consuming fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. The incalculable worth of the love of God is what the Shulamite maiden is saying Seal me with that love. Put it on my heart. Put it on my arm so that my core, my soul would be united to you. That my 
my arm is always a symbol of power and strength, so that my strength and my power would be united and purpose to, for love. Revelation 19, I think I put seven, I think it's seven. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The bride is being fruitful in working what she has been given unto a mature readiness. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the expectation of the church and of Jesus Christ. He looks to that day. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. He looks to, the, to that consummation, the party at the end of, of history, if you will. And as we already rendered in Daniel, all dominions will come into the obedience of God. And the church's role is to ready herself by partnering with the Holy Spirit and the grace of God through the Word and through the rest of the church to get the whole of creation ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. To get everything ready for the party. How will this bride partner with the Holy Spirit except that she is fully in love, fully thrilled, fully expectant, always building herself up, always readying the saints, always readying and bringing in, being obedient in all things to the Great Commission. Go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe and obey all that I've commanded you. Not just individuals, but literally nations, bringing them into obedience, bringing the whole of creation into obedience. All dominions, therefore, would be obedient. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. The bride being ready, the bride being expectant, the bride being busy at work, working the kingdom, working and readying herself, preparing for that marriage supper, and gathering everybody else into preparation. I, I could say it a thousand times over and over and over again, but that has got to in, enliven our expectations, our imagination, that has to capture our fascination. Jesus Christ is the most beautiful one in the universe. Amen. We may look at him, we may love him as the bride looks to the bridegroom and is thrilled and expectant. We may look to him and desire after him and have zero shame about it. Did you know you can love God with your whole abandon and have zero shame about it? There is nothing else in all of creation that you can love with your whole abandon and not have shame about it except Jesus Christ. If you love your families, if you love your wives, if you love your children, if you love the church, if you love ministry in any way that takes a more primary place, it is idolatry than usurp, by usurping the first commandment. It is idolatry. The first and greatest commandment has to remain the first and greatest commandment for the bride to mature. And the Holy Spirit is restoring that to the church. He's always about that. And the whole of creation will be caught up in that obedience. That's what we're after. The cry of the bride at the end of the book of Revelation um, is, Come, 
The Spirit and the Bride say, come. If you notice, the very last verse in the Song of Solomon, verse 8, hurry, my beloved, you who abounds on the mountains of spices and stuff, come quickly. She's crying out, come. The mature Shulamite maiden, which is the picture of Christ, is crying out the exact same thing that the book of Revelation, mature bride of Christ, is expectantly crying in the Holy Spirit, come, hurry up, my beloved. We are waiting. We are busy about the preparation. We are busy about the work that is to be done. Give permanence to the work of our hands. Let us present to you a heart of wisdom when you arrive, but come. Enliven us to love, waken us to love, cause us to desire after you with full abandon, with literally everything, for you are worthy. You are the worthy lamb. Would that that would be the cry of our hearts. Would that that would be the starting place for which we love one another, for which we study the books that are given to us to read, for the which we would arrange our priorities, our schedules, our calendars, our families, everything out of passionate, zealous love for the one who is worthy. That would be my prayer today. That would be my hope. And that we would find ourselves readying each other, readying our own hearts, submitting to the process, and then letting that spill over into the rest of creation. This is why the law matters. This is why obedience matters. This is the first and greatest commandment, and it must be restored. So Ephesians 3.14, Paul, there's a series of prayers, uh, two I know for sure in Ephesians, uh, one in Colossians, I think a couple others elsewhere, where Paul is praying. And so just like paying attention to the prayer of Christ in John 17, paying attention to the Pauline prayers, being divinely inspired and recorded by the Holy Spirit, God-breathed prayers, totally worth memorizing and totally worth informing the language of your prayer life. <laughs> you should pray these prayers. We should pray these prayers. So this one in Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, For this reason, referring to everything you just discussed, well, maybe we won't have time for that today, but for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We, in our personal experience with God and His love, we should be enthralled. We should be thrilled. We should be focused on fleshing out this obedience by the grace that God has supplied us. All the tools are there. All the, uh, all the necessary elements are present. We have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, partnering with the Holy Spirit. But we will only ever know the love of God individually as a fraction. There is a greater comprehension that God desires, and it is a corporate comprehension. Knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. For the bride to make herself ready, she'd need to be filled up to all the fullness of God. She would need to be equally yoked to her husband. 
She can't be an atrophied bride, an immature bride. She can't be one that is untested. She has to be readied in full and truly prepared by the sovereign processes of God. But we would know the love of God in Christ together. We have something at this church that is very precious to me. It is the depth of the community that we have. It's the depth of the, honestly, the vision and the things that God has stored here that we have to steward, that we have to flesh out, are all of these convictions. But we can't do it if only two or three or 20 are doing it. We need all buy-in. We need all participation. Everyone must be consumed with the love of God. (laughs) Everybody must be obedient. Everybody must be motivated and ready and expectant of the work that he has given us to prepare ourselves and restore the church to a mature bride, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Ephesians 4.13. We have to be about this work and we have to be participating and submitted to the Holy Spirit. If your leaders, and we actually are trying to accomplish uh, some of those things in a little bit of our restructuring, we're looking to establish house, uh, home groups, um, not house churches, sorry, home groups, <laughs> life groups, growth groups. That's the point, is you will have a little bit more access to individual per, uh, pastoral care in the process. Um, we're arranging that, we're working on that, that's kind of fun. Um, This is a new chapter for us. It's a different way of doing it for us. Yet, this is the opportunity to provoke one another, one-on-one, smaller groups, to greater intimacy with the Lord, to greater depths of obedience and love, to fleshing out the kingdom in each and every one of us to greater and greater measures. We have that opportunity coming in the, the home group. Excuse me. I'm very expectant for it. I'm very excited about it. Um, it will afford us a lot more. Um, it'll afford us a lot more opportunity to help everybody live out the Christian life to the fullness. Because that's what we're about. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of our devotion, our obedience, all of our riches. He's worthy of us forgetting our opinions, forgetting our preferences. He's worthy of us being transformed completely into new creations, not having anything regarding the flesh previously, but being conformed to his image. He's worthy of all of it. And that baptism of fire is not necessarily, it's always equated, I think, very often it's equated with a baptism and suffering. Fire refines and purifies, yes, and there may be some pain associated, yes, But I truly understand that baptism of the all-consuming fire who is God to be a baptism in love. It is to inflame our hearts. It's to set us ablaze and to motivate us, focus us, drive us to greater maturation, to greater depths of the Spirit and works that He has prepared beforehand for us to do, to ready the bride and bring the whole of creation into readiness for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That would be my prayer, is that that would be emphasized in the first and greatest commandment, would be made primary in our hearts. And we would cry out to God, baptize my heart with your fire, with your love. Let me become obedient from the heart, for you are worthy, and come quickly. That's probably good enough. God... Have mercy on us as we cry out for fire.
(laughs) Have mercy on us and have your way with us. May we enter in to a fuller place, a more obedient, more conformed, more mature place of the bride. We enter in as servants. We learn about our sonship and all the blessings that that comes with. But eventually, at the end of the age, the bride is the one crying out, come. The bride is the one who's ready. The bride is knit together with the heart of Christ and equally yoked to her. Let us be found there. Move us in that direction, God. That we would not be passive. That we would not have other affections that take the place of you. Our relationships would conform to you. That you would be primary in all of these things. In all of our work. And give permanence to the work of our hands, O God. Teach us to number our days. That we would present to you a heart of wisdom. That we would not waste time. That we would be hard after it. Hard after you, Lord. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.